Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 4 this morning. Exodus 4. Moses is still in the presence of God. He's standing at the burning bush. The Lord is there speaking to him. And in the past several weeks, we've studied the things that Moses has learned and known at the burning bush. One is that the Lord is a God who is holy, and yet he's a God of tender compassion. He's learned that Yahweh is the God over the past and the present and the future, and he reigns over Pharaoh's strength, and he reigns over the wealth of the entire world. Moses has been now summoned by God to be the mouthpiece for the Lord to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Now, Moses has not, to this point, obeyed perfectly. Exodus chapter 4, God makes his point very clear. This isn't going to be about you, Moses. The power of salvation entirely rests upon me. So we're going to pick up at 4. We'll read verse 1 through 17. And remember that this is God's word. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we approach your word, we're reminded that this is not simply a beautifully crafted story, 
It is your summons, your call to a man. A man frail and weak, a man doubting and uncertain. But Father, through your people, you desire to show yourself powerful. And so even now, as we come to your word, we pray that through an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me, you would show your word powerful. And we pray that you would give your people the ears to hear what your spirit says to the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's funny, so much of what we will talk about this morning, I think, has been brewing within our office. We, we, we talk about some of these things, uh, and so many things come out. And so before I even begin, I would just always give credit or give away uh, thanks to those who work with me for the kind of comments that they add to our studies. Moses, this is, this is really a matter of faith. You're either going to believe me for my word or you're not. And so when the God of creation, who governs all things by the word of his power, the eternal, self-existent, majestic Lord, appears to you and comes to talk to you, you should believe him. You should take him at his word. If you have your Bible, just take your finger and go back up to chapter 3, verse 18. This was God's promise to Moses. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. And in between that promise and the passage we just read, God says, verse 19, I know. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand. Verse 20, I will do it. Verse 21, I will give these people favor. And now chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Moses, I told you that if you went to the elders, they would believe you. You need to learn to take me at my word. The salvation that I keep promising to give to you and to give to God, to my people, does not hinge on your power. It does not hinge on your goodness. It does not hinge on your perception of yourself. And so here we encounter a spot of doubt at the very beginning to which I suspect most of us can relate. Probably all of us doubt at moments whether God's word could be true. And it's not because the Lord couldn't be powerful enough. The doubts arise because we're staring at ourselves and not at him. By way of example, I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, I, I really wonder if the Lord could save a sinner like me. It's easy to stare at yourself, to focus your attention so attentively on your own unworthiness, on your own unfitness, that you fail to remember the fact that God has made a promise and that you can't present to him more obstacles than he is prepared to overcome. The Bible says that in Christ, God loves you and he is willing to save you. How could he? How could he? Well, it's into that kind of doubt that Exodus chapter 4 speaks. And it simply says the power of salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a matter of faith. Will you believe God for his word? So everything about salvation for Moses and the Hebrew people and for you hinges on God, his power, and his power is revealed in the text before us in two ways. His power in works 
his power in words. So we're going to start with his power in works. In view of Moses' doubts, God gives Moses three signs. These are three miraculous evidence of the power of God, and the message is really clear to Moses. Moses, I have called you to go to the elders. I've called you to take this word to Pharaoh. You are my servant, and I will exude my power through these works. I'm about to do something great. And all I'm asking you to do is to obey me and believe me. The first sign is verses 2 through 5. Moses, what's that in your hand? Oh, it's my, it's my staff. He's been using this ordinary stick to tend sheep, to support himself as he walks up a hill, to, to use to defend against predators who come against the sheep. Throw it on the ground. Instantly, that ordinary stick becomes a snake, and Moses is rightfully scared. The Bible gives us the clues that it's a venomous snake in the way that it describes how Moses goes back to it. Moses reached down and he grabbed it by its tail. The original language wants to tell us just how cautiously he approached it, but yet as soon as he touches it, it turns back into a, a staff. It was a vivid picture. It's a, it's a powerful sign for a man who grew up in the house of Pharaoh. You see, a, a snake to the people of Egypt symbolizes wisdom and power. And so because of that, the, the scepter that Pharaoh held would have been adorned with serpents or images of those serpents. And so in the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, it meant to say that in my hand is power, in my hand is wisdom. God says, Moses, who holds power? Who holds wisdom in the palm of his hand? Is, is it you who reluctantly went back to the snake and grabbed it by the tail? Is it Pharaoh that you're going to approach, holding a, a scepter? God says, no, it's me. Power and wisdom belong to God. Now, why does he do this? Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So here's the message to Moses, and this is what it should mean to you and me. Moses, I can do very ordinary things. If I'm able to do this with a stick and your doubts, I want you to imagine what I will do if you will trust me. If you will allow me simply to use you as the scepter in my hand. And so for the rest of Moses' life, he's going to carry this same staff. And from that staff, the power of God will be revealed to the nations of the earth. These will display God's mighty works when Moses drops plagues on the people of Egypt. This is the staff that's going to part the Red Sea. This is the staff that's going to bring water from the rock. But more importantly, for the rest of Moses' life, he is to be the, the staff in the hands of Almighty God. You recognize, I'm sure, in the text that God is not ashamed to use ordinary dead wood to show forth his salvation. It is 1,400 years from this point that the Lord will use another piece of dead wood 
to show forth the works of his salvation. Not a staff, but a a Roman cross. And on that day, the instrument in his hand will not be Moses. It will be his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the power of salvation belongs to the Lord. And it was Christ who redeemed you on that cross. Which leads us to ask the question that Moses has to ask himself. Am I then willing to become a a piece of dead wood, an instrument in the hands of Almighty God? Would I be willing to just be someone ordinary through whom God would display his power? We're going to come back to this in just a moment. The second sign is found in verses 6 through 8. Scholars tell us that leprosy was really widespread in Egypt at the time. It was completely incurable. If you, if you had it, you were isolated and you were left off to die a fairly lonely and slow, ugly, painful death. Hand in the cloak. It becomes leprous. And you can imagine the terror that Moses felt at the sight of his own hand having suddenly turned white and decaying. And now with one command. Moses puts his leprous hand back in the coat and pulls it out and the hand is completely healed. It's a big sign in the ancient world when an incurable disease can be dealt with this way. What's the message? God's power is proven even over disease. Now, that's going to matter because there's coming some disease on the people of Egypt. It's going to matter when God places physical afflictions on the human body like lice and boils and death. The message, of course, is that God reigns over sickness. If he can do that with with biology, if he can do that with sickness, you can only imagine what he can do spiritually. That's what he's saying. And with that dead piece of wood in his hand, with the Roman cross in God's hand, he healed all of the spiritual sickness of your sin and all the sin which ever ravaged his people. The last sign, verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile shall become blood on the dry ground. <coughs> the Nile is a source of life and fertility. But it is worshipped by the Egyptians as a god. Imagine, God says, if, if, if they will reject those first two signs. If those are insufficient, how powerful will the message be when I take their petty water god in your hands and I pour it out and turn it into blood? Water and blood. What God is doing is placing his finger right on these places that the pagans revered. And he declares, Moses, I'm going to do the same from your hand in the presence of doubters. Incidentally, this sign becomes the first plague in Egypt. And as students of the Bible, you recognize how significant blood is in the book of Exodus. You you recognize how important it is in the rest of the scriptures. Blood represents the, the power of life and death. 
which is why the blood of the Passover lamb in a few chapters becomes such an important and significant image. And yet that Passover lamb points us to a far greater lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Moses is standing in front of the burning bush and he is overwhelmed by God's power and majesty, but it's still a matter of faith. Everything about salvation for Moses, for the Hebrew people, for you, hinges on God. His power overworks. In the Old Testament, God used these physical signs to point to spiritual realities. And it doesn't mean that God wouldn't or couldn't still use physical signs today. It seems pretty clear that there's a way to despise God's works. The way you despise God's works is that you presume that his power in works, his physical signs will be performed on our terms. What would it look like then to to presume God's physical signs would be performed on our terms? Well, Moses had the opportunity to have his staff turn into a snake, and he had the opportunity to have his hand turn leprous and then be healed. How come God doesn't do signs like that today? You see, people despise the new works of God, the current, present works of God, because they think the old ones were better and they, pe- they keep demanding that God would give some visible sign because they think that signs in the Bible are like magic, as if God is a great magician. Signs in the Bible are nothing like that. Signs are meant always to authenticate the message and the messenger. And Moses' big concern is that no one will believe him, and God's answer is, verse 5, I'm doing this that they may believe that the Lord has appeared to you. Today, unbelievers might say, well, I, I, I could believe your God. I could believe your Jesus if he did something like that today. Really? You'd believe in God and his Christ if he did something terrifying to you today? Like turning a stick into a snake? If he struck you with leprosy, then you'd believe? You can't handle the power of God when you demand it on your own terms. Because you see, the power of God never comes on your own terms. And if you demand that the Lord would show you signs, beware. Because he intends to come out on the other side proving his glory. The American church, the Alabama church is just as desperate for signs and wonders. I think you can see it fairly clearly in both the strange and the subtle. The strange, yes, you see it in things like snake handling in worship. You see it when violent conniptions are are blamed on the Holy Spirit. You see it in the strange when somebody says, God told me this. God told me that. A man in my church in Huntsville took his family out of our church. And the reason he took his family out of the church is because the deacons recommended to him that he should get a job. They should take care of his family. 
And it was only a few months later when I saw the man at Target. He ran up to me and he said, Eric, God told me to divorce my wife. God didn't tell you to divorce your wife. No, he did. He's made it abundantly clear. To which all you can say is, how strange. It's precisely the opposite of what his word says. The subtle. What are subtle ways in which we as believers want to see God's power exuded? I fear that you will think that I am speaking of churches here locally. Let me make something really clear. What I'm about to say is a present problem throughout our nation. It is a temptation to run the church like a giant corporation. It is a temptation to root the foundation of the church upon the personality of the pastor and on a clever marketing plan. And when it explodes, you go, surely that's a sign from God. Surely the Lord is present. You can't argue with success. If people are buying it, then God must clearly be at work. It's profoundly dangerous to presume that the Lord works on our terms. The only way to receive God's works is on His terms. And that is this. You receive, you embrace, you you welcome and treasure God's work, even when it seems ordinary in your judgment. And when you receive it, though it is ordinary, with gratitude and humility, then you find something far more rich. People are so desperate for signs and and wonders, but when the Lord gives them something of a sign, they say, well, it's too simple. It's just not enough. Jesus encountered the exact same thing in his day. I can think of two occasions. There's actually a lot more than that. Jesus condemned the crowds for for seeking signs, but missing the message and missing the messenger. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and then he walks on water, and he does these both to authenticate his message, saying, I am the God of your salvation. And then in verse 28 of John chapter 6, the people come to him and they ask him, hey, what sign do you do that we might believe in you? And then they reference Moses and they reference manna in the wilderness. And you and I are meant to read the book and go, did they miss the 5,000? Did they miss the walking on water? And Jesus simply says, I'm the bread of life. As if to say, do not miss the message and do not miss the messenger. One other place, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus heals a man who has a withered hand. And then he heals another man who is mute and blind. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. 
The passage we read is our New Testament lesson, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, to them, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Power of salvation belongs to the Lord. God's power is found in his works. Christ is God's work of power. If you will receive God's works, you must embrace Jesus with gratitude and humility. How strange that people are seeking silly things like tongues and miracles and they're so hungry for visual signs. And while they hunger for visible signs, they ignore the profoundest, most visible sign of all, that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And while you're still waiting for another burning bush, while you're waiting that you would be terrified by a stick that turns into a snake, the empty tomb demands that God would be glorified for works which have already been done. That's his power on his terms. Now, if you do still demand to see his power at work, he will give it. This is what signs look like today. John chapter 17, Jesus tells us, I must leave so that my Holy Spirit would come and pitch his tent in your heart. And so the greatest evidence today of God's works in your midst is that you are being transformed from the inside out. Progressive sanctification. And I will tell you that I can think of no greater work than that an angry, bitter, prideful, sarcastic jerk would be transformed into your pastor to preach the love of Christ to you. I don't, I don't actually want a burning bush. I'll take an empty tomb and a transformed life and just the ordinary reminder in the sacraments that Jesus is the evidence of God's power in works. Power of salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a matter of faith Will you take the Lord for his word? So everything about salvation for Moses, for the Hebrew people, for you and me is revealed in our passage in two ways. It's his power in works and his power in words. Moses is clearly terrified of God's call. And so he, he, he throws up just a couple of more obstacles. Verse 10, oh, I'm, uh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. Did, did Moses lisp or stutter or stammer somehow? Did he have a speech impediment? We don't really know. But what he actually says is, I'm not a man of words. I don't have the gifts of an orator. You wonder if this is humility or, or self-centeredness. You see, I think that Moses is unwilling to trust that God could use him because Moses cannot get over himself. The power of salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a matter of God's power in words. It's not Moses' power. So take a look at verse 11. This is God's response. 
The Lord said to Moses, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It is, is, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. In God's answer to Moses, one commentator said that Moses' excuse is revealed as both irrelevant and irreverent. Irrelevant because it's God who gives the word. He's so consumed by his inadequacy that Moses fails to recognize it's God's message. It's God's power in these words. And so his reluctance is actually self-centeredness. Moses' excuse is also irreverent because it is God who forms the mouth. He can make it speak or not. It is God who makes some people able to hear and some people able to see. It is God who crafts every person according to his creation beauty, whether ordinary needs or special needs. In God's design, friends, there's no such thing as birth defects. And that is because God does not make any mistakes. And so your abilities and your disabilities are actually gifts of God. And they are all intended to bring God glory. And so as believers who recognize that God's image has been borne out on every man, woman, and child, we are not only to be pro-life, we are to be pro-God's glory through that person. What would it look like if the church was the place where special needs and disabilities were actually seen for what they truly are? They're a blessing to God's world. They're a blessing to God's church. They're a blessing to your family and to your home. And then what do you see in yourself that is some sort of physical flaw? You don't have physical flaws. You're being irreverent. You're being irreverent because the God of wisdom and power has crafted you perfectly. And so your concept of flaws comes not from God's design, but from your comparison of the rest of his designs or other designs. How irreverent to say, give me the blueprints, Lord, so that I may tell you how foolish you were in making me this way. Moses, go, I'll exude my power in words to, presume, to, to prove that the power of salvation belongs to the Lord, and it isn't even really about you, Moses. No, wait, Lord, I have one more obstacle, verse 13. Send somebody else. The Lord's anger is kindled against Moses because, of course, it's not an ability problem. It's an obedience problem. Okay, there's Aaron. I will send Aaron with you. He's going to be very problematic down the road, but you're welcome to have him. And I will put my words in his mouth and also in your mouth. Moses has just simply added another link in the chain of God's communication to his people. God said, I was actually willing just to speak through you, Moses. No, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be the one. So you see, there's a way to despise God's word, and there's a way to embrace God's word. The first way to despise God's word, and I believe this is an application to both preacher and people, the power of God's word is always in the message. And unless it is Jesus speaking his own words, it's really never about the messenger. People of God, 
if you would chase the most eloquent speaker, then you are worshiping the gift and not the Lord who gives the word. And so if you find yourself shopping for another church based on the eloquence or the charisma of the man who speaks or his cleverness or how gifted he is, you will always continue shopping as if you are serving yourself down a buffet line with the things that you want to look and sound good. Truthfully, if you're here because the pastor is eloquent, you just need to hang on for a minute. I'm sure I will be eloquent soon. I mean, I will be not eloquent soon. For instance, that. (laughs) But you'll also be disappointed down the street. Because the messenger really must be irrelevant. It's the message that matters. Now, to those who would preach or would long to preach, John Stott quotes Scottish pastor James Denny. He says, no man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. It should terrify you how tempting it is to exalt yourself. How tempting it is to strive to be eloquent and clever instead of godly and moved by God's word and steeped in God's spirit. If you want to despise God's word, then exalt men and exalt their clever sound bites. If you want to embrace God's word, then you, then you embrace what Romans 1.16 says. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the message. It's not the messenger. Now, another way to despise God's word, I don't think the Lord could use me to share the gospel with anyone I'm pretty sure I don't have that gift. I'm fairly certain I wouldn't know what to say. And isn't that precisely what Moses said? As you read the text, when it's on somebody else's record, you go, oh, he's really despising God's word. We need to get over ourselves, don't we? We need to say something. And so if you would never tell anyone else about the precious love of the Lord Jesus Christ that's offered to sinners, it's probably because you are staring at yourself. You despise. You nullify the power of God in his word. You're saying, I believe it's void because this mouthpiece would never be sufficient to carry it forward. Friends, weakness is actually the way that God always chooses to send forth his works and his words. God's glory is exalted in weakness every time. You need to know, friends, that God really can use you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty ordinary. I'm pretty plain, and I don't speak well. I kind of get nervous talking about spiritual things. God says that's perfect. That's perfect because in your weakness, there is no chance that you would nullify the power of the cross. The power of salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word, and we rejoice over it. And we pray that you would cause it to saturate our hearts deeply. 
that we might be content to receive the ordinary power of your works in an empty tomb and changed lives, that we might be ready to receive the ordinary power of your word sent forth from crooked sticks. And now we pray that you would quiet our hearts even as we sing to you and exalt you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.